Well, two Sundays ago, we unpaused our introduction to Systematic Theology series, where we've been looking at the essential doctrines of our faith since March of 2020. It's been that long. We've covered the doctrines of Scripture, God, the eternal decree, creation, providence, sin, covenant, Christ, salvation, and then the law. But when we looked at the doctrine of the law, we spent some time going through each of the Ten Commandments. Now, why was that so important? Well, there's numerous reasons, but as we read in our confession, when God created man, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him in all his posterity to a personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and he endued Adam with the power and ability to keep it. But what happened? Well, just read the opening pages of the Bible. Adam failed to keep that law. And so what happened to the law after Adam failed? Did God just do away with it? Did he say, I don't worry about the law? No. Again, as our confession goes on to explain, this law after his fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six, our duty to man. Now, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers' instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. And to them also as a body politic, that is, as a state, he gave to Israel sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any further, farther than the general equity thereof may require. But now hear this. Even though the ceremonial laws have passed, and the judicial laws or the civil laws have expired with the state of Israel, not obliging any other politic now farther than what the general equity requires, the moral law, which we just read, summed up in the Ten Commandments, doth forever bind all, forever, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So what are we hearing from our Reformed forefathers? That according to the Bible, from the time that God gave man a law, which started the very first day man was created, man has had a responsibility toward God to exercise a personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to God and his law. That did not change when Adam failed, and plunged the whole world or race into sin and death, and that did not change when Jesus showed up on the scene. The moral law binds everyone, believer and non-believer alike, forever. And when Christ came, not only did he not get rid of that obligation, he actually strengthened it. 
In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that last line there is interesting because I've, I've heard some people say, ah, oh, see, Jesus said our righteousness has to exceed their righteousness, which it can't. And so, you know, the law is not important. It doesn't matter. But that wasn't Jesus' point. It can't be his point because what he had just said prior to that was that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of, of God. He wasn't relaxing the law. So what was his point? Well, if you continue reading the Sermon on the Mount, you'll read how Jesus shows us practically what he meant. See, the scribes and the Pharisees kept the law only in an outward manner. They put on a show, lip service. And oftentimes they even distorted the commandments by their own human tradition. Jesus then corrects their perversion of the law, arguing for its true intent, and he never relaxes any of it. You see this, for example, with the sixth commandment. You have heard it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come do terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Does that sound like he's relaxing the law? That he's relaxing the sixth commandment? Of course not. He didn't say, hey, you've heard it was said, don't murder, but eh, don't worry about it. That don't apply anymore. No, rather he goes on to say that whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. In other words, obeying the sixth commandment was not restricted solely to the outward physical act of murdering someone. Even unjust anger in your heart towards another person violates this commandment as well. Jesus wants us to have a sincere, hearty obedience to God's word. In Matthew 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then, of course, there's Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. In Matthew 13, we read of what will happen at the end of time. Up to that point, true believers and unbelievers will live side by side. The sons of the kingdom will live with the sons of the devil. But that's not going to go on forever. There's going to be a harvest. In verse 13, Jesus says, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And you know, there's something that's baffled me. Jesus said here clearly he's going to send his angels to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Well, if it's true, as many Christians claim, that there is no more law, then who are these lawbreakers? Where did they come from? I can just hear it now. Hey, angel, hold up. I'm not a lawbreaker. My friend on Facebook told me there is no more law. I'm not obligated to it. How can I be a lawbreaker if there's no law to break? Well, that person would have a point if his Facebook friend was right, but of course he's not. It's a lie from the pits of hell. Jesus said there will be lawbreakers. And all lawbreakers, all who, onomian in the Greek, lawless, all who do lawlessness, they will be gathered up by the angels and thrown into hell at the end of the age. I mean, you want to talk about hate speech. How's this for hate speech? I can't think of anything more hateful and to go around telling people that they don't have to keep the law of God. Because the reality is, despite their delusions, all people are bound to that law. And all lawbreakers will be thrown into hell at the end of the age. Going around and telling people they're not obligated to the law of God is the same as the equivalent as going to people and saying, you know, just go straight to hell. I don't care about you. It's no different. I don't care what some in your family may be telling you, in-laws or whoever. I don't care what some of your friends may be telling you. I don't care what some busybody on Facebook or Instagram is telling you. And I certainly don't care what the clowns in Hollywood are telling you as they mock God and his word. This is the truth. This is the reality. And deep down inside, we all know that this is true. Paul tells us that in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Lawlessness. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Beloved, don't waste your time trying to prove that God exists. We know he exists. Everybody knows. The most Hardcore, militant atheist out there knows that God exists. That's why he's so honorary all the time. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This homo worship. Think about it. That's what it is. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts because of this idolatry, this homo worship, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for, for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves to do penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, lawlessness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Through Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And you know, when the Jew probably heard this originally, he probably thought, well, that's right, Paul, you get them. You get those filthy, stinking Gentile animals. They're lawless. But then Paul turns to them, chapter 2. Oh, you think you're innocent? Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Everything that we just read was practiced among the Jews, the people of God. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to <laughs> repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Matthew 13, end of age. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Beloved Jew, Gentile, churchgoer, non-churchgoer, makes no difference. 
all lawbreakers will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the age. Now, I don't know about you, but this raises a question in my mind. Is there a way out? Is there a way to escape this wrath and fury of God that he has towards lawbreakers? You know, many people have attempted to answer that question according to their own wisdom and knowledge. I remember back in the day when I first became a Christian, I used to go from house to house knocking on doors, hoping to have this conversation with people. And I would ask them that, how do you escape? And man, we got all sorts of crazy answers. Well, I used to go to church. Or my mom and dad are Christians. Or you know, my dad's a pastor. Or, well, I go to church on Easter and Christmas. But probably the most common thing I heard was, well, I think I do more good than I do bad. So I'm hoping that God sees the good in me and it outweighs the bad. Well, if you recall, after we spent some time looking at each of the commandments, we addressed some of those very things. A larger catechism, question 149, says, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is no man is able either of himself or by any grace received in his life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So not only have none of us kept God's law perfectly as he requires, but we break it every day. And not only do we break it often, we do so with the whole of our being. We break his law with our thoughts. We break his law with our words, the words coming out of our mouths, and we break it with our deeds. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But now you may hear that and think, well, are all sins the same? I mean, aren't some sins worse than others? Well, the larger catechism addressed that in question 150. And to the surprise of many, it states that all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. Some sins in themselves... And by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Jesus talked about the one who has the greater sin in John 19, 11. In our quote earlier from Matthew 5, Jesus spoke of the least of these commandments. So yes, not all sins were equally heinous. I mean, I would rather you be mad at me in your mind than for you to show up at my doorstep and put a slug in my head. I think that's far worse. So yes, not all sins are the same. But lest you think God is going to judge you on a curve, question 152 ruins that hope by stating that every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserves his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So now we're back to square one then. How do we escape? 
How do we escape? I wonder if some of you have asked yourself, Jason, didn't you tell us you're supposed to preach on baptism today? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Everything I've said so far provides the backdrop for baptism. Baptism is the answer to the question. Now, before you freak out, call up Dr. T. Did you just hear that Harrison? I'm not suggesting that we escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for our lawlessness by having a minister pour water over our head in the act of baptism. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I mean is this. A minister pouring or sprinkling water over our head in the act of baptism is a sign. It's a visible, sensible portrayal to our eyes of where the answer lies. It's pointing us to the answer. And the answer is Christ. More specifically, it is the application of the blood of Christ by the Holy Spirit in washing away our guilt of sin and our pollution from sin. No sin can be expiated, that is atoned for, but by the blood of Christ. And just as a quick side note, that's why we pour or sprinkle the water instead of dunking a person into a tub of water. The point of the water is not meant to recreate a gravesite where we are buried and then rise out of. The water is not meant to symbolize dirt. If that was the case, just use dirt. What do you need water to symbolize something that we have access to? That's not the point. Rather, the water is meant to symbolize the spirit of Christ and the blood of Christ, which is poured out or sprinkled upon the sinner to wash him of sin's guilt and pollution. That's the point. And in a moment, I'll touch on this false notion that baptism always means to immerse. It clearly does it when you examine its use in Scripture, but more on that later. Let's get back to this idea of expiation by the blood of Christ. L. Michael Morales writes, and I just want to quote him because you know, he just words it so well. In the sacrificial system of Israel, blood was collected from an animal's severed arteries and then manipulated in a variety of ways. Blood was smeared, sprinkled, tossed, and poured out. In Leviticus 17.11, the Lord declared that since the life of the flesh is in the blood, he gave Israel blood on the altar to, quote, make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, underlining the idea of substitution. The shed blood of a blameless substitute represented life for life, soul for soul, Blood's importance was underscored most prominently by the sin offering. Through the shedding and manipulation of the sin offering's blood, God taught Israel of their need for cleansing from sin and for the removal of sin's defilement and guilt by making divine forgiveness possible. On the one hand, the blood signified death. Displaying the blood before God demonstrated that a life, albeit the life of an unblemished animal substitute, had endured death, the wages of sin. And on the other hand, blood represented the life of flesh. By the principle that life conquers death, blood was used ritually to wipe away, as it were, the defilement of sin and death. I want you to notice Morales here mentions that this underlies the idea of substitution. 
which in turn is extremely important. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Christ did not die as a potential sacrifice. He didn't hang on the cross hoping, man, I hope this works as long as somebody accepts it. Or, you know. Rather, he died as an actual substitute for specific people. I think I've shared this before. There are three prepositions in Greek that describe this relationship between Christ and those for whom he died. The first Greek preposition is peri. Christ died as the substitute for others. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And then in Galatians 1.4, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. Then there's the preposition hyper, that is Christ dies in behalf of others. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, we read that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's the preposition anti, which means instead of or in the place of others. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, turning to Morales, the Day of Atonement was essentially an elaborate sin offering, as you read in Leviticus 16. On this autumn day, the high priest brought the blood of sacrifice into the most holy place, sprinkling it before the atonement lid of the ark, the earthly footstool of God. Blood was also sprinkled in the holy place and applied to the outer altar as well, cleansing both the Israelites and the house of God, the tabernacle, that he might continue to dwell among his people. The one sin offering of the Day of Atonement involved two goats. After the first had been sacrificed for the sake of its blood, the other goat was symbolically loaded with the guilt of Israel's sins as the high priest pressed both hands onto the head of the goat and confess those sins over the animal. Weighed down with the judgment-worthy guilt of Israel on its head, the goat was then driven eastward, far from the face of God into the wilderness. A demonstration of Psalm 103.12, which says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The sin offering then offered the apostles a profound understanding of the death of Christ. That while the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins, Hebrews 10:4, the blood of Jesus, the God-man, shed on the cross and applied by the Spirit to those who trust in him, cleanses sinners from their sins. The thorns pressed onto his brow, an image of humanity's cursed estate, Genesis 3:18, were but a token of his bearing the weight of his people's guilt on his head further demonstrating that he endured our fiery judgment to provide us with true expiation. 
Again, note what Morales says. While the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins, the blood of Jesus, the God-man, shed on the cross and applied by the Spirit to those who trust in him, cleanses sinners from their sins. That's what water baptism portrays. That's what it's pointing us to. The cleansing of sin and removal of sin's guilt by the Holy Spirit applying Christ's blood to our lives. But not only do we see expiation, we also see in his atoning work propitiation. To propitiate means to appease or placate wrath. This concept presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God against sin, which we've already talked about with us being lawbreakers. And so it is the purpose of propitiation to remove that displeasure. Again, Morales writes, turning to the doctrine of propitiation, we find a vivid portrayal of the assuaging of God's wrath as we reflect now on the whole burnt offering. Israel's worship was founded on the whole burnt offering, so much so that the altar, the central focus of worship, was even dubbed the altar of burnt offering, Exodus 30, verse 28. The first episode in Scripture where the whole burnt offering appears is in the story of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. Early on, we are told that the Lord God, who is the main character in the narrative, was grieved to his heart over humanity's corruption and that he determined to punish the wicked while saving Noah and his household. The crisis of the story, then, is the aggrieved heart of God. Even after the waters of divine judgment had abated, however, the situation was not changed. God had not been appeased. His just wrath was not assuaged until Noah, at the dawn of a new creation, built an altar and offered up whole burnt offerings. Using instructive language that attributes human traits to God, the narrative describes the Lord as smelling the pleasing aroma of the whole burnt offering so that his heart was comforted. Chapter 8, verse 21. And as a result of this pleasing aroma, God spoke to his own heart, vowing never to destroy all humanity in such a manner again. And he blessed Noah. Like fragrant, fragrant incense, the smoke of the whole burnt offering ascended into heaven, the abode of God. And he, smelling its soothing aroma, was appeased. God's heart was comforted. That is, his righteous wrath was satisfied. Later on through Moses, God ordained for the priesthood to offer up lambs daily as whole burnt offerings. These morning and evening offerings served to open and close each day so that every other sacrifice along with the daily life of Israel was enclosed in the ascending smoke of their pleasing aroma. The whole burnt offering's divinely ordained impact on God leads one to wonder over its theological significance. The one feature that is unique to this offering is that the whole animal, apart from its skin, was offered up to God on the altar. Nothing was held back. The whole burnt offering thus signified a life of utter consecration to God, which means a life of self-denying obedience to his law. In the words of Deuteronomy, this offering represented and solicited one's loving the Lord God with all of one's heart, soul, and might. And in such a life, lived by Jesus alone, who offered up to God, ascends to heaven as a pleasing aroma, propitiates God. Jesus fulfilled this Levitical system of sacrifice because he offered himself up to God on the cross 
as one who had fulfilled the law. In his tormented night of prayer in Gethsemane, he prayed, My Father, not as I will, but as you will. And then he drank the cup of divine judgment as our blameless substitute. Jesus' life of complete and loving devotion to God, offered up to the Father by the Spirit and through the cross, this is the assuaging of God's wrath. And of course, as we would expect to find, we see this very language, this, this, very, this very idea in the New Covenant. Again, in Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he, that is Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then there's 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we see, beloved, in this sacrificial system, typified and then fulfilled in the work of Christ, our expiation and propitiation. And again, Morales says, because Jesus' suffering was as a vicarious penal substitute, sinners can find rest for their souls. The impending thunderstorm of divine judgment that ever threatens us overshadowing our vain attempts at happiness cannot be dispelled by wishful thinking or misguided assertions. Like we heard earlier, well, I go to church, my parents are to church, I blah, blah, blah. That's wishful thinking, misguided assertions. But rather a Christian basks securely in the warm rays of the Father's favor only because that storm of judgment has already broken in the full measure of its fury on the crucified Son of God. His shed blood cleanses us from our sins, removing our guilt from the sight of God. His wholehearted, law-keeping life offered up to God through the cross, even as He bore our penalty, rises to heaven as a pleasing aroma. Here at last, the chief of sinners finds cause to boast in nothing at all except in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5.2. Beloved, that is the answer. And that is the answer that water baptism signifies for us and seals. You want to escape the wrath and curse of God? It's not going to be done by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to do better. It's not going to be done by going on the app store and finding some time management app to organize your life and do better. The answer is look at baptism. It's portraying for you in visible form the answer. And it's not based on what you do. You're passive in baptism. Rather, it's something that's done to you and for you by another namely the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his blood being applied to you by the Holy Spirit. That's the point of baptism. Rid yourself of any silly and false notions 
that you're going to save yourself and flee to Christ. Now, in closing, I want to address very quickly this notion that the Greek word for baptism always means immersion. Now, there's a long way to do this, and there's a short way to do it. And since I've already gone on for a bit, I have to do it the short way for now. The long way involves looking at every use of the Greek word for baptism in the New Testament, as well as the Septuagint, which is, which is the Greek translation of the Old, and looking at their use in the context. Well, we don't have time for that, but trust me, a number of scholars have done this. I've got a five-volume set by one guy. It's all he does is look at every use of the word baptism in the Bible, in ancient Greece, uh, early fathers, and so on. It, it has clearly been shown that in most cases, and some would even argue all cases, that the word either can't mean immersion in the context, or at the very least can be cannot be proven either way. So that's the long way to do it. But here's the short answer. If we just take a quick glance at some of the more popular verses on baptism, we'll notice something very important. We'll notice a pattern. So as you hear these texts read, see if you pick up on something. In Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. In Romans 6, 1-4, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, Well, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. And then there's 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. For I not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then lastly, Galatians 3, 27. For as, many as you, as, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Did you catch anything there? Did you notice anything? It's not just that we're baptized but we're baptized in the name of Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're baptized into Christ, into one body, as those of old were baptized into Moses. 
Beloved, I believe we run the risk of missing the point of baptism when we get so hung up on the mode of how we're to apply the water in the sign. The mode is not what's being highlighted here. The highlight is you are baptized into Christ and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Murray writes these wise words. We are liable to be misled by the nature of the ordinance as one of washing with water into thinking that the basic import is that of purification. However important that element is, and even though it is included in the import of baptism, it does not appear to be the most central or basic element. We must take our point of departure from the very formula which Jesus used in the institution. He said, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It is this notion of baptizing into that must be appreciated and analyzed. This formula appears in other connections. For example, baptized into Moses, which, by the way, was not immersion. You want just one quick example where the word baptism is used. It's not immersion. It's right there. The Israelites were not immersed in the sea. The only people that were immersed in the sea were the enemies of God. And they killed them. The Israelites went through the sea. God departed the waters. They walked on dry ground. And yet Paul uses the word baptism for them, not for the Egyptians. They were baptized into Moses. What? They were identified with Moses. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 13, baptized into the name of Paul. It is apparent, says Murray, that it expresses a relationship to the person into whom or into whose name persons may have been baptized. It is this fact of relationship that is basic. Hence, we have to ask the question, what kind of relationship? It is here that some of the most relevant references in the New Testament afford us light and direction. And he lists all the ones I just read, so I won't do that again. But what all these passages plainly indicate is that the union with Christ is the governing idea. Baptism signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is because believers are united to Christ in the efficacy of his death, in the power of his resurrection, and in the fellowship of his grace that they are one body. They are united to Christ and therefore to one another. Of this union, baptism is the sign and seal. The relationship which baptism signifies is therefore that of union. And union with Christ is its most basic and central import. We must bear in mind, however, that the formula which our Lord used in the institution of this ordinance is more inclusive than that of union with himself. Baptism is into the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. It means, therefore, that a relation of union to the three persons of the Godhead is thereby signified. And this is entirely consonant with the teaching of our Lord elsewhere regarding the union that is established by him in faith. It is not only union with himself, but also with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And in John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home 
with him. Consequently, baptism, says Murray, by the very words of institution, signifies union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And this means with the three persons of the Trinity, both in a unity expressed by their joint possession of the one name and the richness of the distinctive relationship with each person of the Godhead sustained to the people of God in the economy of the covenant of grace. As was indicated above, we may not, however, exclude from the import of baptism the notion of purification. Baptism is dispensed by the application of water in a way that is expressive of cleansing. And it would be unreasonable to suppose that this action bears no analogy to that which is signified by it. There are two respects in which cleansing or purification takes place at the inception of the relationship with the signified and sealed by baptism, namely purification from the defilement of sin and from the guilt of sin. So, beloved, immersion is not the point. Be baptized into something is to express a relationship. As Murray noted, it is this fact of relationship that is basic to its meaning. Which brings me back to the point I made earlier in answering the question, how do we escape the wrath and curse of God? We escape his wrath by having our guilt and our pollution from sin washed away from us, not by water, but by the blood of Christ being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And that benefit of grace is presupposed, says Murray, by our union with Christ. As Paul said in Romans 6, we share in his death, we share in his burial, and we share in his resurrection. How? Because we are brought into union with Christ. And that is what baptism signifies. Again, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In who? The Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, it is only by a union in and through Christ Jesus that you will escape the wrath and curse of God due because of your lawlessness. That's it. There is no other way. And so I'll leave you with these words from Peter. Even though you weren't there when he said this, it applies to you just as much as it did to them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. But brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what do we do? How do we escape? What did Peter say to them? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray.